Good morning. Welcome again. We're in Second Samuel chapter 18. If you're in one of the blue church Bibles, this is page 269. I'm preaching on all of chapter 18 and end of verse, I mean chapter 19, but I'm going to, like I've been doing, because the passages are long, I'll jump around a little bit reading it to try to give you the gist of it all if you didn't read it all this week. I'm going to start at chapter 18, verse 5. Uh, this is uh, David speaking to his three generals as they're marching out to war against his son Absalom, who has uh, rebelled against him and taken over the throne. David's on the run. Starting at 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I'm not going to waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised him over, over him a great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Jump down to verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said to David, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice 
Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help to understand his word. Lord, we come to you once again asking for your blessing upon our hearing and my speaking of your holy word here. Uh, There are so many hard things for us in your word, uh, just like your people have always struggled to see uh, your goodness and the goodness of your plans for us and for our world. Help us like you've always helped them all through history. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If my goal were to get people to like me and to like this church as much as possible, I would tell you that God wants you to be comfortable, that the Bible's truth is subject to your truth, and that pretty much everybody gets to go to heaven. I would not tell you that God is more interested in your holiness than in your happiness. I would not tell you that God is more interested in your integrity, than your safety. I would not tell you that we must conform ourselves to everything that the Bible teaches and not vice versa. And I would certainly not tell you in our world that there are going to be many, many people, including many very pleasant religious people, who will justly suffer God's eternal wrath. We, and I'm including myself in that, we struggle with many things that the Bible teaches. Uh, Perhaps one of the greatest ones for us in our world is God's anger towards those who do not repent of their rebellion against him. In our passage today, we see King David also struggling to see and to accept the justice and the goodness of God's judgment against his enemies. David is not just facing the judgment of some bad guys out there in the abstract that we can all agree as we pat ourselves on the back that those are all really bad people out there somewhere. But David is facing God's judgment of his own beloved son. We too rescue with seeing the justice of God's anger against those we love. We too tend to avoid seeing how bad sin really is, both for us and for those close to us. But as we re-enter David's story again this week, 
We need to see God's justice the way that God sees God's justice. As a good thing. And as a corollary to that, related to that, we need to see sin as something truly awful, like God does. The only way we can do that, ultimately, is by learning to look to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is God's perfect king who came and suffered God's wrath in order to rescue anybody who gives up their rebellion against him. That's ultimately where we need to look as we struggle with the justice of God's wrath. The first piece of today's passage describes the defeat of the Antichrist. Uh, The word Antichrist, uh, some of you kids maybe are working on your Greek and Latin prefixes as you get ready for the SATs. Uh, The word Antichrist, as you might be able to figure out, means instead of the anointed, instead of the Christ, in place of the Christ. Uh, This word pops up in the New Testament uh, to describe people and ideas and movements that counterfeit and oppose the truth of Jesus. Uh, Not just at the very end of history when we talk about like, oh, the Antichrist, and we make really spooky movies about him, uh, but mainly the way it talks about it uh, as, as something that's active in the world right now. The Bible talks about the spirit of Antichrist or the many Antichrists who are in the world. David's son Absalom is what we call a type. Uh, He is a type of this person and this spirit of Antichrist. That means that he kind of points us forward. He depicts in his own life a larger reality. David himself is also a type. David is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the true and the ultimate Christ. And so Absalom is a kind of Antichrist because he has rebelliously taken the place He has rebelliously asserted the authority of his father, David, who at this point in God's dealings with humanity, at this point, David is the Lord's anointed. That's what the word Christ means. David is the Lord's chosen king. Absalom's been dominating the story of Samuel since chapter 13. His rebellion against David, if we've been following the story, we know his rebellion against David is in many ways a consequence of David's own rebellion against God from when David prayed upon Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. Even though David repented sincerely for his sin, God told him, still, I promise you that your life and your family will now always be marred by violence and rebellion. And so Absalom's dark and murderous quest to become the Christ is actually God's discipline upon David. But last week we heard that God was also committed to defeating this Antichrist. That God was quietly but sovereignly intervening into the cabinet of Absalom so that he would accept some very bad advice that would cause him to walk straight into his own destruction. God uses the sin of Absalom to discipline David, but at the same time, God is right to punish the sin of Absalom who to his very last dying breath remains entirely opposed to God. And so you see the defeat of Absalom there in the first half of chapter 18. Uh, We have some time that's passed since what we heard about last week, since David fled from Jerusalem with his ragtag band of supporters. Uh, We know that some time's passed because we hear about how he's been able to assemble this army, even though he's still very badly outnumbered against Absalom's army. Uh, he wants to go out to fight with them against Absalom, but his troops convince him at the beginning of the chapter to stay behind, 
let us go out into the field because they know that Absalom's forces are going to be fixated on killing David. If they can kill David, then the path is completely clear for Absalom to remain on the throne. No one else can claim to be the king. And so David agrees to stay back. uh, And as his army's marching out before him, he pulls aside his three generals and he tells them to deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And we might be able to translate this as deal gently with the boy, with Absalom. We're told that everybody hears David say this. Uh, They and we, of course, can sympathize with David here. We know that as awful as his son has been, he's still his son. David loves him. We know that it must be incredibly painful to march out for war against your own child, especially after we've seen in David's life that he's already had one son be murdered and another son die really soon after he was born. David's family is completely falling apart around him. How much pain must he be going through to be going out to war now against his oldest son, his oldest remaining son? But at the same time, David's request that his army go easy on the evil and spiteful Absalom is absurd. And it's not just because this is going to be practically impossible in the midst of a huge battle. Even more than that, as understandable as it is for David to be concerned for his son, David seems to be succumbing to this sentimental disconnect from moral and social reality. David is not really seeing the true nature of his son's sin and how much damage it has been doing to him and to his wider family and to his kingdom and to the purposes of God. In verse 6, you hear about how Absalom's forces suffer this massive defeat by David's much smaller army. Uh, We're told that the battle spreads out over a huge area uh, and that the trees uh, devour more men there than anything else does. Uh, If you're like me, when you hear that, you get excited that maybe ants are real and they were out eating uh, the soldiers for real. Uh, But actually what's going, what that means is that Absalom's army gets tangled up so badly in the middle of the forest that they lead to more deaths than any of the tactics themselves. The Bible often talks about how God uses the forces and the creatures of nature to accomplish his purposes. He does not only use people or their plans to do this. And so you're being shown here that God can even use trees to carry out his judgment on his enemies. But even more than the battle, which only gets a simple summary, just a couple of sentences, uh, that's all that we hear about it. Even more than that, the passage is particularly interested in the defeat of Absalom himself. Uh, Like his army, Absalom meets his end tangled up in a tree. He's riding a mule, which might sound kind of funny to you, but was actually for them their royal vehicle back then. This is what kings rode. Uh, He's riding his mule. And by God's arrangement, we hear that one of David's soldiers just so happens to be there with Absalom as he runs into this tree. Uh, He gets caught somehow in an oak tree as he's riding underneath it. Verse 9 tells us, uh, the word there means that this part of his head, this part of his body is what gets tangled up in the tree. It's probably a reference to the massive head of hair that we've heard about from Absalom. Uh, This is meant to be ironic uh, and dark, kind of a dark humor here. Uh, because we know that Absalom's hair uh, is a, a kind of good uh, picture of his larger vanity and pride. Uh, literally and metaphorically, the source of his strength and his splendor ends up being his downfall. And so as, after he loses control of his mule, just like he's now losing control of the kingdom, 
We're told in this odd phrase that Absalom is there hanging by his great hair between heaven and earth. He's dangling there helplessly. He's neither dead nor alive. He's not king nor subject. He's accepted neither by God or by Israel. And so David's soldier sees all of this and runs to tell his general, Joab. Uh, If you might remember, Joab has popped up in the story of Samuel quite a bit. Joab is a cold and calculating man of action. Joab hears about it. He says, well, what were you doing? You should have just killed him. I don't care what David said about going easy on him. Uh, The soldier makes excuses about why maybe that wouldn't have been a good idea to go against the king. And Joab says, I'm tired of talking about this. I'll do it myself. Uh, Absalom's hanging there in the tree, still alive. Joab stabs him three times somewhere in the torso and then gets his lieutenants to finish him off for him. And so in verse 16, you now see how this very decisive Joab stops the battle. Uh, He he takes uh, Absalom's mangled corpse and they throw it into a pit and they cover it with a pile of stones. Uh, That's an echo of the way that other enemies of God had been executed or killed at earlier places in Israel's history. The point is that Absalom is a total failure, that he's been rejected by God. The Mosaic Law uh, in the book of Deuteronomy says that any man who is hanged on a tree or impaled on a tree is under God's curse. And so you're seeing that literally enacted in the shameful way that Absalom dies. You then get this note in verse 18 about how Absalom earlier had erected a monument to himself in an attempt to make a name for himself and leave leave a legacy in the world. The reason that comes right on the heels of hearing about this terrible way that he's killed and buried is to underscore how utterly defeated he now is, how utterly futile his attempts to build a legacy for himself were. All of it, is a small picture of the eternal defeat awaiting anybody who rejects God and rejects his king. Much of the language that the Bible uses, most of all Jesus himself, that language to describe hell is the language of shame and defeat, destruction, isolation, humiliation. Nobody likes to hear this, But if you are here today and you have not accepted God's mercy, God's gift in Jesus, that means that you are living like you're the king instead. If you have not done that, God is telling you this morning that this is where things are headed for you too. For a long time, things seem to be going really great for Absalom. But now the Antichrist has finally been conquered. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But David struggles to see that. And so you move from the defeat of the Antichrist to the devastation of the Proto-Christ. Uh, kids, learning your prefixes, proto means early or first, of course, as you all know. We move from the conquest of the one who demanded to be God's king, who demanded to rule in place of God's king, now to the weakness of the king who points us forward to the real king, the weakness of David. He's the proto-king. Everybody knows that David wanted Absalom to be spared. And so starting in verse 19, they're out in the field after the battle's over. They have this debate about what are we going to do? How are we going to break this to David? Uh, David may very well react violently to this news, just like he had done when he heard the good news that Saul had been killed uh, in battle uh, earlier in David's life. Uh, Two different men end up racing to bring the news to David, with both of them knowing that this really is good news and that David should be glad to hear about the defeat of Absalom. 
uh, in verse 28, we hear that the first one to get to David quickly announces to him, all is well. Uh, in the Hebrew, this is just one word. This is the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace or wellness or wholeness. Uh, he says, shalom, David, uh, everything's well. And he, sells that, he says, God has brought you deliverance from these rebels. But David only asks if uh, everything is well, if there's shalom with Absalom. That's all David wants to know about. He's not interested in the outcome of the battle. Uh, all he can focus on is whether Absalom has emerged unscathed. Uh, at this point, the first messenger chickens out and doesn't know what to say to David and mumbles something incoherent and doesn't really tell him what's happened. But in verse 31, the second messenger arrives. This is the part we picked up and read. He announces good news to David. He says, God has given you vindication from your enemies. Again, David frantically asks right out the gate, is everything okay with Absalom? Is there shalom with Absalom? Uh, But now this messenger finally breaks the news to him. He says, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Absalom has been defeated by God just like he deserved. It's good news. But David's devastated. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, my son. He says, would that I have died instead of you. In the abyss of his grief and of his remorse, David can hardly speak. Between sobs, all he can do is stammer the name of his dear son. David is paralyzed by sorrow. Sorrow that is, I'm sure, mixed with deep regret over his own sin. Over how his own sin has led to so much misery for his family. And like we said before, in many ways, it's totally understandable. It's even right for David to respond this way and for David to feel this way. We don't and we should not click our heels over seeing people, to su- seeing people suffer the consequences that they deserve for their sin. We don't pretend like there's no real pain or cost from sin. We don't detach ourselves from genuine love and concern for those around us and among us, even when they are rejecting God's purposes and gifts for them. Some of you here today are profoundly grieved over how your own children have or are rejecting God's wisdom for their lives. And you should be grieving. It's right and it's good to grieve it. Sin is awful. In many ways, this episode of David's life is showing us the painful tensions and the gray areas of relationships and life and family in a world that is so horribly broken by sin. Sometimes all you can do is mourn before the Lord. Uh, You know, you should know, that the Lord is your loving Father, even when you cannot understand what He's doing or why He's doing it. And so sometimes all you can do is grieve. All you can do is lament and say, I don't understand. But at the same time, something's wrong with David here. Like we said before, he's struggling to see the larger purposes of God. He's struggling to see the perfect wisdom of our loving Father's justice in the world. 
in spite of his many admirable and godly qualities, uh, some of which have reappeared at the late stage of his life that we're hearing about, that's mostly a pretty sad story. In spite of the good things about David, uh, he still remains a pale reflection of the perfect king that our world so badly needs. David has been weak, he's been passive, he's been compromised. Joab is not a good man, but he sees this disconnect in David's emotional and social life. And Joab calls him out on it. In chapter 19, we're told that Joab goes to him and says, I understand that you are deeply grieved over the death of your son Absalom. But you need to understand that Absalom deserved to die. That he was doing incredible damage to you and to everybody around you. And so he points out to David, he says, look, in your paralysis and your weakness over what should be good news to you, you are causing your people around you to question whether or not you are really committed to them, whether or not you are really going to do what's good for them. And Joab says to him, he says, you're not even grateful for what your people have sacrificed for you, for the risks that they've taken for you. He says that your priorities are so messed up that I know that you would be glad if Absalom was alive and we had suffered a horrible defeat. He says it's like you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. And so he convinces David to go out and to express his gratitude to the people, if for nothing else in Joab's mind, to pragmatically preserve the unity of the kingdom. And so as morally questionable as Joab is as a man and as a character, his stark frankness here with David helps us to see the weakness of David in the face of God's good plans. The defeat of the Antichrist, the devastation of the Protochrist, but now we close with the integrity of the true Christ. Once again, the text has shown us in David's many ambiguities, in David's many failures, that we need a king who is so much better than him. Jesus is the king that the sinful and the weak David could never be and would never be. Like David, Jesus grieved over how his murderers would suffer God's judgment. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, Jesus is heading into the city of Jerusalem where he knows he's going to be executed by people who hate him, who should be welcoming him with open arms. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus grieves over the horrible consequences of the sins of those who remain steadfastly opposed to him. But unlike David, Jesus at the same time not only submitted to God's plan for the world, but also carries it out. Speaking and warning about God's wrath more than anybody else in the Bible combined. And at some level, David, I think, saw the justice of God at least toward himself. He laments that he could not be the one to die instead of Absalom. I think he knows at some level that this is his fault. He says, I wish it could have been me and not you. I'm the one who really should have suffered defeat. But we know too that 
it would be impossible for David to die in Absalom's place. David himself was only a man, and he was a sinful man. His death in Absalom's place would have fixed and solved nothing. It would have only led to further chaos in his kingdom. But Jesus really could and really did die instead of his enemies. He was fully God and fully man, perfectly obedient to God in all things, unlike the sinner David, so that his death in our place, that's what we call his substitutionary death, was infinitely valuable before God and so infinitely effective in covering over all of our sin so that we and our world could ultimately be redeemed from all of its horrible consequences. It's only at the cross of Jesus that you see the justice and the mercy of God meeting together in perfect harmony. So see the goodness of God's justice, but see it especially at the cross where Jesus really was suffering under God's wrath for you. But as you look there and you see the justice of God, see also the mercy of God. The mercy of God for you and for the church, the mercy of God offered to the whole world. Give up your rebellion and it can be yours too. Finally, David failed to defend his friends. He ignored what they had done and sacrificed for him. He looked for some kind of way to avoid seeing his enemies suffer under God's judgment. But Jesus perfectly carries out God's justice against his and our enemies. And he faithfully stands with all of his friends. As regards his enemies, Jesus perfectly carries out God's judgment. Earlier in our service, we heard from the book of Revelation about that happening climactically at the end of history. It's happening in small ways throughout history now, but it will happen finally and fully then. You can trust Jesus to execute God's wrath because he is the most wise and righteous man who has ever lived. He rules perfectly on behalf of the God who sees everything. Listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. He says, My judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. You can trust Jesus to perfectly and fully carry out God's justice. Nobody will be able to claim that he's done anything wrong at the end of history. But as regards his friends, listen to this. To the very end of your lives... In all of your weakness, Jesus is always protecting and defending and even rewarding you. We close here with the words of the Apostle Paul at the very end of his life, reflecting on how Jesus has done this for him, how Jesus will do this for him. Paul is in prison. He's gone to trial. He says, nobody showed up. No one showed up to defend me. But listen to what he said. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You can trust the Lord Jesus to be God's king. To be your friend. And to rule justly over God's enemies. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the goodness and the wisdom and the glory of the Lord Jesus as your king. Help us to see the goodness of your justice. Even as we struggle to understand it. Help us to live lives of humility and joy in the midst of a world of pain and confusion and mystery. 
And Lord, we do pray especially for those in our families, those in our uh, neighborhoods, our work, whom we love very dearly. And we are so deeply concerned about them rejecting you. Would you lead them to yourself? Would you reveal yourself to them? Would you use us to show them how good you are? We trust you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.